Hi, I'm Valerie Loveless, and I'm just an everyday Latter-day Saint. I go to work, I have a family, I try to keep the commandments and get my scripture study in. I have a thirst for more gospel knowledge, but not always the time. If you're like me, then join me on my podcast, Everyday Saints. I'm going to take us into the topics that matter to you, pull them apart, listen to the experts and the authors, and keep you up to speed on what it is that Everyday Saints are talking about, reading, and listening to. Just search your podcast app for Everyday Saints and the Angel Moroni thumbnail. Hello, everyone. This is Scott Fraser, one of Cedar Fort Publishing's authors and the host of the podcast Science and Scriptures, which is offered on their website. I am your guest teacher today for a somewhat more well-known podcast called Come Follow Me with David Ridges. We are going to discuss Doctrine and Covenants, sections 106 to 108 today, which is the lesson for September 20th to the 26th. We'll start in section 106. To explain the setting for this section, Doctrine and Covenants 106 was given through Joseph Smith at Kirtland, Ohio, on November 25, 1834. This revelation is directed to Warren A. Cowdery, the oldest brother of Oliver Cowdery. It states that Warren is to be ordained and appointed to be the presiding high priest over the church in the land of Freedom, New York, and the regions round about. Warren then receives a special message from the Lord. In verses 6 through 8, we read, And again, verily I say unto you, there was joy in heaven when my servant Warren bowed to my scepter and separated himself from the crafts of men. Therefore, blessed is my servant Warren, for I will have mercy on him, and, notwithstanding the vanity of his heart, I will lift him up inasmuch as he will humble himself before me. And I will give him grace and assurance wherewith he may stand, and if he continue to be a faithful witness and a light unto the church, I have prepared a crown for him in the mansions of my father. Warren Cowdery owned an apothecary, served as postmaster, and had constructed the first brick house in Freedom, New York. At the time, he and his wife, Patience, were the parents of eight children. Though he apparently learned about the Book of Mormon around the time it was published in 1830, Warren did not join the church until four years later. In March of 1834, Joseph Smith and Parley P. Pratt passed through freedom to collect donations from church members in the eastern countries for Zion's camp, and they stayed overnight in the home of Warren and Patience Cowdery. Warren's conversion process may have been difficult. Verse 6 of this section states, There was joy in heaven when my servant Warren bowed to my scepter and separated himself from the crafts of men. About eight months later, Brother Warren received his calling in D.N.C. section 106. On May 22nd to the 23rd, the Twelve, on their first mission as a quorum, journeyed to the Freedom area and held a conference there. Orson Pratt visited the area on a mission. The church was growing in freedom, with many converts moving to Kirtland. In the fall of 1835, the Warren Cowdery family sold their property and moved to Kirtland. At first, Warren made many important contributions to the Lord's work. As a clerk for Joseph Smith, he helped write down the dedicatory prayer for the Kirtland Temple. He worked in the publishing office in Kirtland and edited the church's newspaper. However, in 1837, as many saints in Kirtland began to lose money in Joseph's Kirtland Safety Society, Warren's editorials became critical of Joseph Smith and the church leadership. Cowdery left the church soon after. He lived the rest of his life in Kirtland. Unlike his younger brother Oliver, who left the church but returned to full fellowship later, Warren never returned to the church. Now let's turn to section 107. Section 107 reads like a primer 
for teaching about the priesthood. Note the tone of the first two verses. There are in the church two priesthoods, namely the Melchizedek and Aaronic, including the Levitical priesthood. Why the first is called the Melchizedek priesthood is because Melchizedek was such a great high priest. I always consider this to be strange wording, but the rest of the section goes on to explain the priesthood organization. For me to teach the relationships between the different priesthood functions would require a whiteboard, which is difficult for you to see on a podcast. So let's look for trends in our organizations that will help us remember our church's structure. The leader of the church is the prophet, seer, revelator, and president. He has two counselors, and they make up the quorum of the first presidency. Then there's the quorum of the twelve apostles. The men in these two quorums make the decisions regarding the administration of the church. Lastly, there's the quorum of the seventy, taking their name from Luke 10.1, where the Savior calls seventy men to go out and do missionary work. Taking from verse 24, speaking of the twelve apostles, we read, And they form a quorum, equal in authority and power to the three presidents. The seventy are called to preach the gospel, and, from verse 26, they form a quorum equal in authority to that of the twelve apostles. In his book on the Doctrine and Covenants, David Ridges quotes President Joseph F. Smith to explain these verses, and we read, Joseph F. Smith taught, I want to correct an impression that the twelve apostles possess equal authority with the first presidency in the church. This is correct when there is no other presidency but the twelve apostles. But so long as there are three presiding elders who possess the presiding authority in the church, the authority of the twelve apostles is not equal to theirs. Likewise, the seventy, who serve under the direction of the twelve, would become equal in authority only in the event that the first presidency and the quorum of the twelve were somehow destroyed. The history of the 70s is a good example of the fact that church organization will change to accommodate new needs of the church. In February 1835, the prophet Joseph called the first 70s in this dispensation. In 1975, President Spencer W. Kimball reconstituted the first quorum of the 70, and the following year, the 21 men who had been called as assistants to the 12 were ordained 70s and made members of the first quorum. Ten years later, in 1986, Though the first quorum of 70s continued their labors, the 70s quorums and stakes throughout the church were discontinued. Those serving as 70s returned to elders' quorums or were ordained high priests. In 1989, the second quorum of the 70 was organized. Members of the second quorum serve under a five-year call, while members of the first quorum serve until they reach age 70. Every church stake has a president who has two counselors, following the same organization as the first presidency, Each stake has a high council, which takes on the same role in the stake as the twelve apostles take on for the church as a whole. They are assigned responsibility to speak in wards, work with auxiliary organizations, etc. In each ward, there is a bishop who has two counselors. Each ward has a ward council, which takes on the same role for the ward as the high council takes for the stake. Members of the ward council lead ward auxiliaries and help administer other functions of the ward. This pattern of a leader, two counselors, and a council has been followed for many years in the Church of Jesus Christ. Apparently, God likes this pattern. When Jesus walked the earth, he called twelve men to act as his quorum of the twelve. Interestingly, the Savior did not officially call counselors. However, when the Savior is resurrected, he assigned Peter to be the president of the Church, and, according to New Testament verses, James and John served as his two counselors. A new member of the Quorum of the Twelve, Matthias, was called in an attempt to restore the Quorum of the Twelve 
to 12 men. More apostles had to be called later as apostles were killed. Paul was one of those so-called. So let's look at principles upon which the church organization and structure is built. One of the first founding principles upon which our church organization is built can be found in D&C section 121, verse 39. We have learned by sad experience that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men, as soon as they get a little authority, as they suppose, they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. We can see this principle reflected in church organization. I have often wondered why a bishop, a stake president, or a prophet, who we believe to be inspired of the Lord, needs two counselors. We can see how power and authority in the church is distributed among many people. As much as you may like and trust the prophet, the Lord has organized his church so that he can't exert unrighteous dominion in the church. Strange, isn't it? In an effort to distribute the power and authority within the church, power is held by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. When the President dies, the Quorum of the First Presidency dissolves, and we are led temporarily by the Quorum of the Twelve. When a new President is called, he will establish a new Quorum of the First Presidency. We also have a hierarchy in the Church. If you are unhappy with a decision by the Bishop, you can appeal to the Stake President. If you are unhappy with this decision, you can appeal to the area representative, or Salt Lake City. When King Mosiah tried to pass the kingship of the Nephites to one of his sons, they all turned him down. Mosiah then made the monumental decision to write a letter to his Nephite subjects, suggesting that it was time to stop having kings and move on to a system of judges. In Mosiah 29, he explains, Therefore, if it were possible that you could have just men to be your kings, who would establish the laws of God, and judge this people according to his commandments, yea, if you could have men for your kings, who would do even as my father Benjamin did for this people. I say unto you, if this could always be the case, then it would be expedient that you should always have kings to rule over you. Mosiah is correct. If you could always have just men to be kings, kingships are by far the most efficient form of government. The king makes a good decision, and it is followed by his subjects. There is no council who must first approve it. There is no other authority that needs to validate the decision. However, Mosiah continues in verses 16 and 17. Now I say unto you that because all men are not just, it is not expedient that ye should have a king or kings to rule over you. For behold, how much iniquity doth one wicked king cause to be committed? Yea, and what great destruction! Despite the fact that a king is the most efficient form of government, it is not worth the risk of the iniquity a king can cause. So, the Nephites chose judges to rule over them. The power of the king was distributed among groups of higher and lower judges. If a Nephite was unhappy with the ruling of a lower judge, he could take the matter to the judge above him in the organization. Again, we see the distribution of power between a larger number of people. The Founding Fathers of the United States were also aware of the principle stated in Doctrine and Covenants 121. They knew the problems that occurred when dealing with a king, specifically King George III of England. So, probably under the same inspiration as Mosiah, they organized the United States government on the principle of power distribution among men. The Constitution instructs that the President of the U.S. must work with Congress to get laws passed. The Supreme Court must agree with these laws, or they can repeal them. The Church and our government go to a lot of trouble to follow the principle taught in Doctrine and Covenants 121. As a side note to our discussion about power, there are also strict rules in the Church as to who has the power to determine Church doctrine. 
Did you know that if an apostle writes a book, it must include a disclaimer that the book is not a publication of the church and its opinions are not to be considered doctrine of the church? Only a book written by the prophet during the time he is a prophet can be considered to contain church doctrine. This is an awesome power and responsibility that our prophets have come to understand over the years of church history. For example, Brigham Young made some comments during his time as president that have caused much criticism in the church even today. During church history, our prophets have become especially sensitive to watching what they say, and for good reason. Did you know that news agencies monitor what is said in our general conferences to see if there's anything new, controversial, or generally newsworthy that they can report? If the prophet says anything unexpected or even slightly controversial, it will be reported to the world by the next day, and rarely in a kind way. It is a strange sort of power that would make one very careful in their word selection. In the last few decades, there has been a great deal of discussion about the priesthood and whether women should have it or not. As you read section 107, you should be able to come to a better understanding of the basics of the priesthood. It is a structure that serves as a foundation for the church. Within that structure, we find the responsibilities of different offices, from deacon to teacher to priest to elder, to high priest to apostle and to the prophet. It allows the church to coordinate roles and responsibilities of different leaders, councils, and auxiliary leaders. Women might want to hold the priesthood because we really do talk about the power of the priesthood a lot in the church. The concept that we share some of God's power pleases us. But practically speaking, the power of the priesthood is rarely used. Yes, we give the occasional priesthood blessing, as this is a responsibility of a holder of the Melchizedek priesthood. However, the structure and responsibilities of the priesthood are utilized and required almost every day. As most men will affirm, the priesthood requires work. Though having the power of the priesthood may sound impressive, the priesthood responsibilities mostly come down to completing very mundane assignments, such as setting up chairs and tables for award activity. Other church leaders also seem somewhat confused with the complaints that women don't have the priesthood. Every member of the church has access to the power of God. President M. Russell Ballard stated, Our Father in Heaven is generous with His power. All men and women have access to this power for help in their lives. All who have made sacred covenants with the Lord and who honor those covenants are eligible to receive personal revelation to be blessed by the ministering of angels, to commune with God, to receive the fullness of the gospel, and, ultimately, to become heirs alongside Jesus Christ of all our Father has. President Dallin H. Oaks taught the same thing. He stated, We are not accustomed to speaking of women having the authority of the priesthood in their church callings, but what other authority can it be? When a woman, young or old, is set apart to preach the gospel as a full-time missionary, she is given priesthood authority to perform a priesthood function. The same is true when a woman is set apart to function as an officer or teacher in a church organization under the direction of one who holds the keys of the priesthood. Whoever functions in an office or a calling received from one who holds priesthood keys exercises priesthood authority in performing her or his assigned duties. It would be tedious of me to try to review the priesthood organization and quorums, especially without that whiteboard I mentioned earlier. Most listeners are very familiar with the priesthood organization and the relationships between its groups. But I did want to discuss verses 40 to 57 in section 107, where we learn a few of the details about the history of how the priesthood is passed from a father to his family. This section takes us all the way back to Adam, 
identifying to whom he passed on the priesthood. This discussion starts out as follows in section 107, verse 40. The order of this priesthood was confirmed to be handed down from father to son, and rightly belongs to the literal descendants of this chosen seed to whom the promises were made. This order was instituted in the days of Adam, and came down by lineage in the following manner. From Adam to Seth, who was ordained by Adam at the age of sixty-nine years, and was blessed by him three years previous to his, Adam's, death, and received the promise of God by his father. Later verses go on to relate that Enos, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, and Methuselah were ordained under the hand of Adam. Lamech was ordained by Seth, and Noah was ordained by Methuselah. This history illustrates that the priesthood has been passed down from father, or grandfather, to son since the beginning of the world. It was passed down by men who held the priesthood and were authorized to pass it on to their descendants. It seems that the Lord wants us to understand this fact, and includes much detail, including the ages of the patriarchs when they received their ordinations. Seth, was ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood when he was 69 years old. Enos was ordained when he was 134 years old. Canaan was 87. Mahalalel was 496. Jared was 200. Enoch was 25. And Methuselah was 100 when ordained by Adam. Lamech was 32 years old when he was ordained to the priesthood by Seth. Noah was only 10 years old when he was ordained by Methuselah. In my first draft of this lesson, I was going to avoid these verses in section 107, but I felt guilty about that decision. These are confusing verses, but here we go. As most all of you know, the ages of the patriarchs, when they died, are given throughout the book of Genesis, especially in chapter 5. These ages at death, like their ages when receiving the Melchizedek priesthood, are very high. Adam reportedly lived to be 930 years old. The longest-lived patriarch was Methuselah, who became a father at the age of 187 and died at the age of 969. Then life expectancies of the patriarchs began to drop. Abraham was 175 when he passed away. His son Isaac was 180 years old when he died. Jacob died when he was 147. His son Joseph died when he was 110. Moses died when he was 120. Joshua was 110. King David was only 70 years old when he died. And from then on, the prophets die within normally expected lifespans. So before you expect me to give you a reason as to why the Old Testament claims that patriarchs could live for almost a thousand years, I can't. I have heard that time was not measured in the same way as we do today, or a year wasn't defined as 365 days. I have heard that men's DNA was pure in the ancient days, so they lived longer. As their DNA was tainted, they lived fewer and fewer years. I have heard that the Lord blessed those early patriarchs for their righteousness by letting them live for hundreds of years. But there are severe problems with each explanation. First, there is no archaeological evidence that men ever lived over 100 years in those ancient days. In fact, life expectancy was then much lower than it is today. We learn in Genesis 5 that Seth was 105 when he fathered Enos. Noah was 500 years old before he begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Why in the world did these good men wait so long to have children? They certainly didn't have birth control options we have today. So my own conclusion, certainly open to debate, is that the counting of years was different in the ancient days than it is today. Remember that Genesis was an oral history for hundreds of years before it was actually recorded. Keeping time or keeping good chronological records somehow changed. 
One indicator of this possibility is given in Psalms 90.10, a verse which is attributed to Moses. He said, The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. In this verse, Moses suggests that living to seventy is normal, and living to eighty is a ripe old age. But Moses was reported to have died at 120 years old, 40 years longer than he suggests. Why would he do that? Moses is purported to be the author of Genesis. In any case, he was certainly aware of the ages the patriarchs claimed therein. Why would Moses tell us to expect to live 70 to 80 years when he knew the patriarchs had lived over 10 times that age? Maybe he, like us today, didn't know either. Secondly, I don't know why God would bless his early patriarchs to live so many years. How many of those years were they elderly? Isaac was blind the last years of his life. Abraham was described as old and well-stricken in age. With medical increases to life expectancy, many of us can expect to live half our lives as elderly. Personally, I don't want to make that span any longer. Again, I can't answer this question today, but I think there is something wrong with the reporting of the patriarch's ages that we don't yet know about. However, Returning to DNC 107, the Lord also gives us very old ages for when several of the ancient patriarchs received the Melchizedek priesthood. The oldest, Mahalalil, was reported to have been 496 years old when he was ordained. My belief is the Lord gave these ages in the same format as was used in Genesis. It continues the confusion, but hopefully one day this mystery will be explained. Doctrine and Covenants 107, Part 2 When you read verse 60 and the verses following, you may be a little confused. Many of the same principles you read about in verses 1 through 39 are repeated. To understand this redundancy, you must read the introduction to section 107, where we find the following explanation. Although this section, 107, was recorded in 1835, the historical records affirm that most of verses 60 through 100 incorporate a revelation given through Joseph Smith on November 11, 1831. Since it all has to do with the organization of the priesthood, the Church decided to include both the 1831 and the 1835 revelations in the same section in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now let's talk about bishops and literal descendants of Aaron. Of this last half of the section 107, I would like to discuss verses 69 through 73, discussing the dual roles of a bishop. Starting with verse 69, we read, Nevertheless, a bishop must be chosen from the high priesthood, unless he is a literal descendant of Aaron. For unless he is a literal descendant of Aaron, he cannot hold the keys of that priesthood. Nevertheless, a high priest, that is, after the order of Melchizedek, may be set apart into the ministering of temporal things, having a knowledge of them by the Spirit of Truth. In his book, David Ridges quotes Joseph Fielding Smith in his explanation that these verses, as well as 16 to 17 of this section, refer to the presiding bishop of the church. In any case, these verses do nicely illustrate the two distinct responsibilities of the bishop of a ward. First, the bishop sits as a leader of the Aaronic priesthood and is responsible for the temporal needs of the ward. A high priest may be set apart and assigned to oversee the temporal things of the ward, which is a function of the Aaronic priesthood but he can only do this if a literal descendant of Aaron cannot be found. Continuing with verse 72, speaking of a bishop, that he is also to be a judge in Israel, 
to do the business of the church, to sit in judgment upon transgressors, upon testimony, as it shall be laid before him according to the laws, by the assistance of his counselors, whom he has chosen or will choose among the elders of the church. This is the duty of a bishop who is not a literal descendant of Aaron, but has been ordained to the high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. So the second responsibility of the bishop is to be a judge in Israel. Now this is the responsibility of his being a high priest in the Melchizedek priesthood. That is why, as I read, this is not the duty of a bishop who is not a literal descendant of Aaron, but who has been ordained to the high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. A literal descendant of Aaron and a holder of the Aaronic priesthood could not sit as a judge. Note that in this responsibility, he must have counselors, as we discussed earlier in the lesson. Let's read more about this literal descendant of Aaron requirement that we read about here and in D&C section 68 as well. Reading verse 76, But a literal descendant of Aaron has a legal right to the presidency of this priesthood, to the keys of this ministry, to act in the office of bishop independently, without counselors, except in a case where a president of the high priesthood, after the order of Melchizedek, is tried to sit as a judge in Israel. Please note that a literal descendant of Aaron has a legal right to the presidency of the Aaronic priesthood, and he can act in the office of bishop independently, without counselors, except in the case of a very unique excommunication trial. This is an interesting exception. A bishop who is a literal descendant of Aaron can choose not to have counselors. We can go to the book of Exodus to understand this literal descendant of Aaron proviso that the Lord insists upon. The following two verses may sound familiar, as they are used in one of the ordinances of the temple. We read in Exodus forty twelve through 15 And thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and wash them with water. And thou shalt put upon Aaron the holy garments, and anoint him, and sanctify him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt bring his sons, and clothe them with coats. And thou shalt anoint them, as thou didst anoint their father, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. In effect, the Lord made a covenant with Aaron that the Levitical priesthood would flow through his lineage. The Lord remembers his covenants and, thus, insists that descendants of Aaron have first right to be either a ward bishop or the presiding bishop of the church. Today, as in 1835, the chances of finding a man who could prove to be a literal descendant of Aaron is very slim. In a discourse delivered in 1877, Elder Orson Pratt stated, If we have literal descendants of Aaron, they have the birthright, through their obedience to the gospel of the Son of God, to the bishopric, which pertains to the lesser priesthood. It is the presiding authority over the lesser priesthood, they have the right to claim it, and to all the keys and powers pertaining to it. But as we have none at present, to our knowledge, that belong to the seed of Aaron, that has the right to this by lineage, the Lord has pointed out that those who are ordained to the higher priesthood have the right, by virtue of this higher authority, to administer. So the Lord knew that the instruction given both in D&C 68 and again here in D&C 107 was probably never going to be needed. But he had made a covenant, and he wanted to make it clear to the church that it was still in effect. On a side note, Aaron would probably have been a superstar prophet and servant of the Lord if he hadn't been overshadowed by his brother Moses. It would be quite an honor to have a priesthood named after you. Only Aaron and Melchizedek, yet another servant of God that we know little about, have received such recognition. Section 108. 
Section 108 was received on December 26, 1835, and was directed to Lyman R. Sherman. Brother Sherman had been ordained to 70, and had come to the prophet with a request for a revelation to make known his duty. On October 7, 1837, Lyman was ordained a high priest and appointed to Kirtland High Council. By October of 1838, Lyman moved to far west Missouri. Interestingly, in January of 1839, Lyman was to be appointed a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, but he died in far west within the month before he could ever be notified or ordained. Allow me to read verses 1 through 3, where Lyman is both praised and reprimanded. Verily, thus say the Lord unto you, my servant Lyman, your sins are forgiven you, because you have obeyed my voice in coming up hither this morning to receive counsel of him whom I have appointed. Therefore, let your soul be at rest concerning your spiritual standing, and resist no more my voice. And rise up, and be more careful henceforth in observing your vows, which you have made and do make, and you shall be blessed with exceeding great blessings. This last verse is the kind of scripture that you print off, tape on your bathroom mirror, and read every morning. To repeat that verse, Arise up and be more careful henceforth in observing your vows, which you have made and do make, and you shall be blessed with exceeding great blessings. So Lyman, unlike Warren Cowdery, stayed faithful in church until his death. So that is all I have for you today. I want to thank David Ridges and Cedar Fort for the opportunity to teach this class. I hope it helped you understand a bit more about the gospel and the priesthood. This is Scott Fraser, your guest teacher today and the host of the podcast, Science and Scriptures. Take care and have a great week. Scott Fraser has studied the overlap between his religious beliefs, sciences, and history, and he's compiled his unique perspectives on these topics. Fraser takes a measured, competent approach to addressing important gaps between scientific findings and gospel teachings in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Where Science Meets God, 12 Ways Science Reinforces LDS Doctrine. In this volume by Scott Fraser, he discusses the overlap of science and religion, especially evolution versus creationism. Angry with God, Understanding the Rules of Earth Life. In this volume, Scott reviews the rules that God has to enforce on the earth. God cannot give blessings that could prove his existence, as the earth would cease to be a place of faith. Mentally calm, spiritually connected. The interdependence of mind and spirit. In this final volume, Scott addresses how the increase of mental depression initiates spiritual depression and faithful church members. You can find these Scott Fraser books at cedarfort.com.